Good morning again, uh, 59th Street family. Um, welcome to our church. Uh, for those of you who are joining us a little bit later today, and we're going to continue to move forward in, in our sermon series, Tales of uh, Timeless Wisdom. And today we're going to actually be taking a look, not from the Old Testament, so we, we've already gone through most of the wisdom literature um, in the Old Testament. Um, so today we're going to jump forward into the New Testament and take a look at the book of James. Um, now last week for, for my introduction, I, um, I brought up the Karate Kid and Mr. Miyagi, and today I, uh, I want to touch a little bit more about karate, um, if you guys will allow me to do so. I think, um, if, for those of you, I'm, I'm not sure if you guys have taken karate or seen karate before, uh, but modern day karate um, is less of a martial art and more of a philosophy, actually. It's, it's seen as a way to pursue self-perfection, to pursue enlightenment. And the way that they would try to do this is through something known in Japanese called katas, which are basically forms uh, with preset moves. It's, it's actually kind of like a dance. Have you ever seen um, people in the park do like tai chi? Um, it's a lot like that. It's almost like a dance. And the idea is that the practitioner in their mind, as they execute each move, they would try to harmonize their mind and their body to execute each technique with perfect position, with perfect form. And so in order to do that, the practitioner would have to have 100% focus. They have to have 100% focus on their body, but also 100% focus on their mind as well. And because of this focus, performing katas becomes a lot like a moving meditation or moving mindfulness, where they try to connect, again, their body with their mind. And so with this focus on, on self-mastery, the number one question that these karate practitioners um, ask themselves is how? How do we execute this technique with perfect form? How deep should we sit in our stance? How do we move from one technique uh, to the next technique with grace and precision? And in essence, it becomes a lot, like I said before, like a dance. But the thing is, the real purpose of karate katas, um, it's far more insidious because these moves were originally meant to be used in actual combat, whether to fight wars or to defend your village from invaders. And so in original karate um, in, in Okinawa, their focus is less on how, how do I execute this, and more on the question of why or what. Why do we use this technique? What is the purpose of this technique? And so actually, let me, let, me show you, let me show you a demonstration. This is, this is quite embarrassing for me. When was the last time you saw your, your, your pastor do karate in front of your eyes? And so basically, the, the idea in modern-day Japanese karate is the idea on form. And so, for example, if we were to do a knife hand block, shuto okay, the idea is, okay, how do, we, how do we move properly? Am I staying at the same height as I move forward? And as I land, do I land with my foot and my hand at the same time? Is my hand and my shoulder in the same uh, height? Is there a fist width underneath my armpit? Am I engaging my scapula? Is my head posture correct? Is my hip posture correct? How deep am I sitting in my squat? And so each time they perform a move, they would go through this mental rhythm of going from one to the next, of one, ex of one technique to the other technique, trying to master each one with perfect position. But, if I can call Barry to come forward here, what is the purpose of all these movements? Is it just a pretty dance? Is it, what is the actual practical application? And 
Fortunately for you all, I'll answer the question before your very eyes. And so suppose, suppose in, in a dangerous situation, Barry got very frustrated at me, and he decided to jab me with his left hand. So remember this move, right? What is the purpose of this move? I will show you the purpose of this move. So let's say, Barry, you jab me with your left hand. Please don't kill me now. <laughs> so Barry, so the idea, remember this, this part? What is this part for? This part is to, Barry, break his arms. Literally, to break his arms. And remember this part, what is the purpose of this part? So again, Barry. So one, break his arms, you grab him, and you pull him into you as you, you know, uh, execute him. <laughs> thank you, Barry, thank you, Barry, thank you, Barry, thank you, Barry. And so, why do I bring this up today? I think sometimes in modern Japanese karate philosophy, they're so focused on the proper execution of the technique without the proper application of the technique. They're focused on the proper execution without the proper application. And so when situations arise, when the person actually does need to defend themselves, even though they've drilled this deadly technique 10,000 times over, they don't know how to apply it. They know about the theory, but none of the practice. And as a result, in dangerous situations, they get hurt and they think karate is absolutely useless. But what they should have been doing is they should have been practicing and applying these techniques in actual combat scenarios to focus less on the theory and the technique and move on to the most critical stage of application. And I think likewise in our Christian faith, there are times where we kind of get stuck, times when we get stuck on certain points in our spiritual growth. Um, I've heard this phrase from one preacher once before, I forgot, I forgot necessarily who, uh, but this phrase kind of stuck with me because it, it accurately captures the various stages to grow as a Christian. And the phrase is to wake up, clean up, grow up, and finally show up. There's a clear progression in our faith where we first need to wake up to our need for Christ and accept the forgiveness of sins, but then we begin to clean up we begin to remodel ourselves. Um, we ask God for the forgiveness of sins. We begin to remodel our lives, remodel um, our, our behaviors after Christ. But then after we clean up, we also grow up. We grow up in maturity as Christians. But the thing is, so far, this is all theory. This is all technique. The most important part is finally to show up, where we apply and practice our newfound identity, our newfound ethics within the Christian community and within the world at large. And so in the passage that we're about to see in James, uh, we also see these progressions or these milestones of faith, but there's a very important milestone that James calls us to achieve, to not stay stuck on one stage or the other, but to finally apply, to finally show up. So let's take a look at our passage today, and it's from James chapter 1, uh, verses 19 to 27. And it reads this. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror 
and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now before we begin, I just want to reiterate those four stages of growth in this paradigm. We actually don't have slides, so listen carefully. Um, the four stages are waking up, cleaning up, growing up, and finally showing up. And today we're going to be taking a look at those last three, cleaning up, growing up, and showing up. Um, I think most of us here are already Christians, so we have already woken up to the aspect or to the idea that we, we need Christ. But if you haven't uh, woken up yet, Please, talk to me after service, and, and I'll be more than willing to, um, to go through that with you. But let's start with the first stage. After we have accepted Christ, let's start with cleaning up. And the, and the idea of cleaning up is how do we respond appropriately to the fact that we have been saved by Christ? If we have truly been saved by Christ, something within us should change. And the first thing that we desire to do as we accept Christ is we desire to begin to clean up our lives. In James, uh, in verse 21, he says this. He makes it very clear. He says to us, therefore, get rid of all moral filth. Get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent in you. And the term that moral filth that James uses here is, in Greek, it's ruparia. And the, and the, and the word translates more to just dirtiness. It translates more as a defilement or pollution. And what this means is that this cleansing of this moral filth, it's not just on the surface level. If our sin has polluted us all the way down into the depths of our heart, it's a call that we need to understand that everything in our lives does not match up to God's standard. And so rather than just focusing on the external, where maybe we curse less or we engage in less you know, harmful habits or bad habits, it's really about transforming everything. Our attitudes, our thoughts, our motivations, and all of those things that influence our behavior. And the reason we do this isn't because we're trying to earn our salvation, right? The thing is Christ has already paid the penalty for our sins and has given us salvation. But the reason we clean ourselves up is that it is impossible for us to align our hearts with God's hearts when we still desire the things of this world. To give you an, an analogy of, of what I mean, pretend, um, pretend I moved to Chernobyl, um, the radioactive you know, wasteland, and I decided to, to start a farm there on radioactive soil. For sure, things will grow out of that soil, but because of how polluted that soil is with radioactive waste, it will completely damage the plants and the fruits from the molecular level, molecular level all the way from the inside to outward as they grow. But suppose, for, for instance, suppose the plant actually looked normal. I grew it, it looked like a normal tomato plant. It didn't look mutated. It doesn't have like, you know, like crazy things growing out of it. Would you still want to eat that fruit or vegetable? Even if I gave it to you for free, would you want to eat this fruit grown from 
radioactive soil, even though it looks beautiful on the outside? And the answer is, quite frankly, no, right? Like, you're out of your mind. Why would I eat this? It's toxic because it grew out of toxic soil. Likewise, for us as Christians, how can we live healthy Christian lives if the soil within our hearts is toxic? Even if our outward actions look clean, look holy, even if I put on this mask where he's, I'm like, oh, wow, that guy's a good Christian man, if the inside is completely dead and completely toxic, how can we grow good fruits out of that? And so how do we clean ourselves up then? Uh, the rest of verse 21, it, it continues by saying this. To clean ourselves up, we have to humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. And this word that James is referring to is, of course, the entirety of the scriptures and the gospels. When we have accepted Christ, there is a new soil, a no longer toxic soil, a new soil in our hearts that is entirely clean and entirely perfect. And so a big part of cleaning up is making an active decision to choose to plant in the clean soil as opposed to the toxic and corrupted soil that's in this world. And practically, this means waking up to see that the thoughts and actions that come from our hearts when we plant in the toxic soil, we have to wake up to see that it's not only destructive to ourselves, but it's also destructive to other people as well. We have to wake up to see that we have been poisoning ourselves and eating poisoned fruits our entire lives, not realizing how much damage it is causing within us and within our relationships. But the Holy Spirit, through the word planted in us, it convicts us. And if we are receptive to this wake-up call from the Holy Spirit and from God's word, we begin to see all the damage that we have done to ourselves and to others. And we begin to repent. And repentance is, is more than just saying sorry, right? We, we repent, we allow God's blood, uh, Jesus' blood to wash away our guilt and sin. But then as we repent, it's also about reorienting our hearts, reorienting our lives to follow God. And that is the most critical and important part, to now reorient our lives, to walk and live in a pure and holy manner, to stop planting our thoughts motivations and desires in corrupted soil, but to now plant those in good soil, perfect soil, to actively choose to root our lives in the word of God that is planted within us, to choose life over death, holiness over pollution. And as we make this conscious decision, we begin to, quote-unquote, graduate from cleaning up to now growing up. Um, verses 19 to 20, uh, James tells this to the church. He says this, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. I want to take a look at that last phrase here. The righteousness that God desires. If the process of cleaning ourselves up of our pollution means going deeper than the surface then the process of growing in righteousness is exactly the same. It's more than outward behavior, but it's about changing the core essence of who we are. That in our hearts, not just you know, on our skin, but in our hearts, in our deepest, most being, we are growing in righteousness. We are 
growing a heart that reflects God's character and God's values. And so growing up in our faith really means to walk alongside God. It means that we allow God to continually shape our hearts, our minds, and our lives. And this only happens when we fully surrender to God. To grow up spiritually for us means to surrender. When we allow God to mold us like clay. And this surrendering aspect is actually incredibly important in our growth spiritually. I think the common advice that Christians give one another when it comes to growing in faith, we tell them to read scripture, right? Develop a, develop a, a, a habit of reading scripture, develop a, a consistent prayer life. And it's not bad advice. It's actually very good advice, but it's missing a secret ingredient. Uh, back during college and, and part of my seminary life, the first Christian habit I learned was daily Bible reading and daily prayer. But for some reason, it felt entirely empty. I would read through the Bible back and forth multiple times. I prayed every day, but something didn't quite sit well with me. You know, I was, I was growing in, in tremendous knowledge. I was growing in knowledge both biblically and theologically, but I didn't feel like anything was growing spiritually in my heart. And so for a long time, I just thought, man, maybe I'm just not reading enough scripture. Maybe I'm just not praying enough throughout the day. And so, so during seminary, I, you know, for fun, this is what I like to do for fun, to grow more spiritually, I did this intense regimen where I would read through the Bible cover to cover uh, five times in a single year. That means eight chapters in the morning and another eight chapters at night for a whole year, read through the Bible five times. And I still felt like the same person, only with more knowledge. Why? What was missing? There was no surrendering in my heart. It didn't matter if I read the Bible 20 times a year. If I didn't surrender my heart to God, if I did not allow God's word to mold and shape me, then it's entirely pointless. I was like a seed that refused to germinate. You could put me in the most nutritious soil. You could water me every single day of the week. But if I did not accept any of that water inside of me, then I would never germinate. I would never grow. And so a big part of what it means to grow spiritually is to surrender. Surrender more and more. To allow God to shape our hearts more and more. And so through the word, we no longer read just for the sake of knowledge, but we read as if we are conversing as if we're speaking with God himself. Um, sometimes for, for my daily Bible reading now, I, I would just read one single verse. Forget reading, you know, like 16 chapters a day. Sometimes I would read one single verse and deeply meditate on that one verse. Maybe it might even be part of a verse sometimes. And I ask God, Lord, what are you trying to tell me? What are you trying to show me? How are you trying to mold and shape my heart through this one verse? I began to finally think like how Christ would think. I began to serve as Christ would serve. I began to desire what Christ desires, and amazingly enough, without any effort at all, because it's no longer me who is alive, but it's now God who is alive in me. He is the one who has shaped and molded my heart into his image. And so as we surrender more and more, we'll begin to experience that. That we'll begin to look less like 
our old selves and more like our new selves in Christ. Our identity changes, our attitudes change, our desires change, our behaviors change, everything changes within us, and as a result, everything changes outwardly as well, as we surrender ourselves more and more to God and to his word. And that is what it's like, and that's what it means to grow in Christ-likeness, to grow in maturity. But the thing is, growing up in Christ is entirely pointless if we do not reach the final stage of growing up. And essentially, I mean, sorry, the final stage of showing up. And essentially, showing up is the final stage of our growth as Christians as we integrate ourselves back into our church and back into the world as transformed people. James, in the final section of our passage, he reminds us of this when he says this, Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, they deceive themselves. And check this out. Their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. He doesn't mention prayer. He doesn't mention reading your Bible. He says this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And in this part, James shows us why having the right speech or the right ethics of speech and generosity are a big part of what it means to have a complete faith. Why is speech important? Well, speech, first of all, speech is a reflection of whether we have done the process of cleaning up and growing up. I don't believe it's a surprise to anyone to realize that our words, they're really a reflection of what is going on internally within us, right? And so if we surrender our hearts, if we truly have surrendered our minds to God, if we have truly allowed God to transform us, if we've done the process of cleaning up that filth, then the words that come out of our mouth will always be filled with grace. It will always be filled with forgiveness. It will always be filled with love. And the power of this is that words can create. Words can also destroy And so when we are filled with the love and grace of God, then it begins to influence how we speak. And as it influences how we speak, we realize that our words have a direct impact in other people's lives as well. Our words can change other people. Our words can begin to positively draw people to God. And this has been the entire purpose of cleaning up and growing up. We become more and more like Christ, not for our own sake, but we become more and more like Christ so that through my speech, I can bless you. I can be a blessing to others. And James makes this point when he tells us that the religion that is acceptable to God, as pure and faultless, is one where we look after the vulnerable and the needy in society, the one where we are truly a blessing to other people. More important than scripture, more important than prayer. Can you imagine that? This is the type of faith that is acceptable to God, a faith that puts others first, a faith that serves others first, a faith that loves others as much as we love our God. And so as we come to the end of the sermon, I want to encourage us not to get stuck. It's easy to get stuck and think that Christianity is all about our own personal piety, our own personal walk with God. That's part of it. But as we grow in maturity, we understand that our faith is actually to demonstrate love to others. A student is given education, a student is given skills 
in order to apply that education and skills as a worker. If the student has a 4.0 GPA but never knows how to apply that knowledge in the workplace, then what's the point of their perfect 4.0 GPA? Likewise, we're trying to get a perfect score. We're trying to get that 100 in spirituality, and there's nothing wrong with that, of course, but if we never apply it by loving others as ourselves, then we have failed our role as Christians. Christ did not call us to be spiritual students. Christ called us to be his servants, to be his workers, to work in his kingdom while we are still here on earth to evangelize, to disciple, to serve, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. That is a faith that is acceptable to God as pure and faultless. And so, brothers and sisters, let us desire to have this type of complete faith for ourselves. So please, why don't you join me uh, for a time of prayer today? Heavenly Father, um, we just want to pray to you and, and just say sometimes it feels like we've been spinning our, our wheels round and round and round, but our faith goes nowhere. But Lord, you have shown us what is right. Because your son loved you so much, he was determined to come to die for our sins. We thank you, Father, that Christ did not stay up in heaven only to love you, but through the example of, his, but through the example of your son, I pray that you'll encourage us to love others just as your son has loved us that you'll encourage us to follow the example that he has set forth. Father, if we, if we call ourselves Christians, followers of Christ, then let us follow him. Let us love you, but let us also move our faith into practice. And so, Lord, we, we pray for our church. You know, as much as we pray for our individual lives, Lord, we also pray for our church, that as we move forward, you will show us and direct us on how to love our neighbors here on 8th Avenue as we love ourselves. Father, we pray for the after-school program that we are planning in the future. We pray for our various youth and children's ministries. But Father, we desire more. We want to serve more. We want to love this community more. So stir a fire within us to be obedient and faithful servants to you. Father, we love you so much. We love our neighbors as ourselves as well. We pray all this in your precious son's name. Amen.